On episode 130 of the Vincast, I'm joined by Dan Panel, who runs Cult Pemberton Winery Picardy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of the Vincast for 2018. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I couldn't be more excited for you to join me for the first episode of the year. Um, very, very excited um, to uh, to have a number of amazing guests this year, hopefully with a certain uh, amount of regularity, um, which probably needs um, requires me to do a little preparation, particularly around harvest time, because I'll be busy making my third vintage of Vino Intrepido. Uh, let me know if you've seen the Vino Intrepido wines out and about in your wine discoveries. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, also hopefully have uh, a number of um, live recordings of the podcast. Um, and if you didn't hear it or see it on uh, on the Facebook Live um, or the Introvert Wino Facebook page, um, the first uh, edition of the, the Vincast Live was held uh, in early December last year. Uh, and I was joined by a couple of former guests. And hopefully I'll have uh, many more this year. Um, I'm looking forward to up Uploading the audio recording of that uh, um, edition and uh, hearing what you think of it, and hopefully having uh, many of you attend some of the live recordings. Um, but uh, this is an episode uh, for the first one for, for 2018. I actually recorded several months ago whilst uh, my guest was here in Melbourne, Dan Panel of the uh, famous wine uh, family, the Panel family, uh, who um, Dan's father, parents established Mosswood in Margaret River. Very much in the early days, was one of the pioneers of uh, Margaret River, um, but has subsequently um, sold Mosswood and now, uh, or now, has been for over 20 years, been running um, Picardy in Pemberton, also in Western Australia. Uh, so Dan was uh, very, very uh, generous in uh, donating some time whilst he was here in Melbourne to chat about his uh, his life and his background and the story of Picardy. So I hope you do enjoy the episode. Please stick around to the end to find out how to get in contact with us to let us know if you enjoyed it. But until then, I'll see you on on the other side. Dan Panel, you are here in Melbourne after a, a, a huge Pinot Palooza, no doubt, um, and you've been able to uh, set aside a little bit of time for us to sit down and chat here on the Vincast. Thank you very much for, for being on the show. No worries. Thanks for having us. Uh, Dan, I start every episode by asking my guest if they can remember the first kind of interaction that they had with wine they can remember that made them think about it in a different way. And, uh, and set them on the path to following a career in wine? Um, that's hard for me seeing I grew up in it from such an early age so, with Dad starting Mosswood. So it was a general, it was a gradual osmosis? Or can you, can you what, what, what's your earliest memory of understanding, oh, this, this is what wine is or, or this is what our family business is? Oh, I think from, you know, probably three or five years old, I understood what we were about and the work Dad and Mum put into the property and us running around as kids out there and right. all of that. But I, uh, certainly there were stages of life where you get a better um, appreciation of what it's for. I mean, okay, I was probably a fair bit older. I would have been probably early 30s and the first time I happened to get into Chablis into one of their dirty dark cellars and 
you know, yeah, it's almost, you know, for the first timer, their tears in the eye sort of feeling and shit, this is amazing stuff and, you know, it just reinvigorates your passion for what you do when you happen to walk into those situations. Mm. Um, yeah, and during my life, obviously, very fortunate when Dad and Mum sold Mosswood in the uh, mid-'80s that it was uh, 82 and 83 Burgundies and Bordeaux were for sale, so Dad filled his cellar with those wines. So I more or less grew up drinking those. So, wow. yeah, it sort of stuffed my palate up for Bigozzi <laughs> styles. But, you know, that's what I grew up drinking and very fortunately so. And, yeah, um, so my palate is certainly more pushed towards that European finesse, elegance, complexity rather than bigness of wine. Were you born in Mo River? I was born in Perth originally, but we moved to Bustleton when pretty much when I was one or two years old. Mm. Dad had bought the land at Mosswood. So, what was it like uh, growing up on not only you know a vineyard, but arguably one of the most important uh, vineyards in in the region? Uh, as uh, I, I believe it was the first commercial. Uh, vineyard in in the region it was actually second behind Vas Felix right okay yeah there Tom Cullody was first with that and then dad with Mosswood and we actually grew up in Bustledon near the beach so no, no, lifestyle no, choices no. was as good as you can get back sure. in the 70s in Bustledon but um yeah the the property we were out there a lot and yeah it was vacant land and I remember you know dad trying to do things and you know having to drive a couple of hours over to Donnybrook because there wasn't much farming implement stuff in Bustle to Margaret River then, so you had to go to the older farming areas, which were a bit more inland. Um, yeah, trying to source winemaking equipment, making cement tanks out of old, out of new sewerage cement tanks and lining them with wax every year. And, yeah, it was pretty hardcore. And um, the old man was a really hard worker and quite inventive in ways of getting things done and an avid reader so you know i think um yeah it worked but it was a lot of work to get there for sure were you expected to to sort of help out with the the family business as well from a relatively young age yeah all four of us had to go out there when we you know after school or on weekends and school holidays Mm. help out and you know we ran around not necessarily helping all the time but you know we actually i think most of well the four of us actually quite enjoyed it as well because uh, it was a different lifestyle, but it was good fun, and yeah, um, we all hung out together a fair bit. Mm. Did you each kind of have particular parts of uh, the the business, the the, the process of uh, of wine that you connected with, or did you just not, sort of enjoy everything? Not really. We all did everything, and you know, um, I, I I think all of us actually hated it. Being honest, as kids, okay. <laughs> by the time they sold it, we were all sick of it, and you know. Um, so, yeah, we were certainly never going to really follow on. And, uh, yeah, my older brother's in it and I'm in it and my younger sister's married to a winemaker. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, worked out that way. But, um, yeah, I mean, you look back now and it wasn't that bad. But at the time, yeah, we had other things in our lives as kids not wanting to be there. So, Were you encouraged to, to taste wine when you were still relatively young? Yeah, we we always had wine on the table mm-hmm. in Bustleton and, you know, certainly if mum and dad opened good bottles, um, we were encouraged to taste it. Champagne was the big one, I suppose. We all hooked into that as kids and, you know, the old Laurel Perrier when it was seven ninety nine a bottle. <laughs> Goodness gracious, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, it was around and uh, available and, yeah, still a very good wine back then as well. 
But uh, sort of, especially as a teenager, um, did you have any particular uh, other interests that uh, you thought about maybe following a career outside of the wine industry? Oh, yes and no. I mean, I was mainly into horse riding and windsurfing and surfing, so more individual sports. So it was never for me going to be a career. That was just sport. But, um, yeah, towards the end of school I was actually more into accounting and business management. Really? Yeah, my started a degree in that, but once again too much surfing and water skiing at the time, so didn't end up completing that. But it's been very useful running the business, having done that as well. Um, then I went into pubs and bottle shops and ended up managing pubs and bottle shops and working my way around Australia a bit doing that. And then one day just had enough of that and rang mum and dad and said, I'm going to Roseworthy. Right, okay. Mm. Um, how old were you when when uh, your parents sold Mosswood? Uh, about uh, seventeen, I think. Okay. Yeah. And how developed was the region at that point? Was it was there a lot more kind of interest, or was it still growing? It was still prior to its sort of um, major growth phase. I think that happened more in the because that was around about when Kate Mantel got back to back Jimmy Watson trophies, didn't it? Oh, that was a bit earlier. You know, again, but I think the real exponential phase of Margaret River was. Uh, in the mid-90s when uh, we got all the tax breaks on planting, which right. I think actually stuffed our industry. So mm, um, yeah, as soon as you get government intervention in like that in a business, I think, uh, yeah, it all went too far. Mm. Um, so working in uh, in pubs and, and bottle shops, that probably would have given you a, an interesting a grounding in terms of uh, the trade, uh, and also with the, the end consumers, was that uh, was that an interesting ex- experience? And what were people drinking when you were working uh, in that uh, part of the industry? Well, I worked in a few pubs, especially over here, and it was a bit of a shock for me originally because when they asked for a glass of wine, they meant to pour it out of a four liter bag and box. But, yeah, um, yeah. So that side, the pub side, was all good fun at the time, but um, not really helpful for where I'm at now. But certainly the retail side getting to see a lot of other wines, getting to see customer choices and, uh, you know, learning about how to handle and work with customers. Uh, I find that still very handy for this side mm-hmm. of what I'm doing. Um, but I'd have to say nowadays I'm sort of happier back a house. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond um, the experience you had at home um, tasting widely, widely um, the, the, the chance to be, particularly in, in, in Melbourne, uh, in, in wine retail, you would have been exposed to uh, quite a good range of uh, different wines, both from Australia and overseas? Yeah, I mean, back then it was still pretty small over here even, I found. You know, there's, um, there were a few, like every state, there were a few good wine stores but not a lot. You know, we're talking late 80s now. So, mm. um, you know, there was a good range of wine but it still was nothing compared to what we see today Mm -hmm. you know um you had to know who to buy from and where and when it was coming in and things like that but um yeah certainly now you can walk into just about any bottle shop and have a good range of quality wine and uh quality imports as Mm -hmm. well and and people with knowledge selling them to you i mean if you look even back to early 90s in wa we had pretty much no sommeliers and um, we had probably two good retailers who really knew their stuff. Um, and, you know, now we've got a sommelier 
in just about every restaurant that sells wine and probably 20 to 30 really top-end retailers in WA. Yeah. So I think that's been a major advancement for Australia. You know, in WA we've got this guy, Dan Wagoner, who was in Sydney before, and his knowledge is incredible. And then we've got, you know, just right behind him, some amazing songs over there. And to think that with only 15 years ago we had no one. Mm. So, yeah, I think the industry's really had a good shake-up and, you know, even Pinot Palooza on the weekend looking at the way the party atmosphere works and people are seeing wine as more an enjoyable thing rather than a toffee thing to drink at a table of toffee people. Mm. Um, you know, it's really brought it down to earth and open to everyone and accessible. I think it's a bit different to perhaps, you know, back when you are working at pubs and people just wanted booze in their glass, you know, they yeah. didn't care if it came from a from Chateau Cardboard. Yeah. The people, even though they are drinking like and they're having fun and it's you know uh, a party atmosphere they still care about what they're drinking and potentially they're caring about where the product comes from how it's grown how it's made that kind of thing so i think that's probably a really exciting thing to be happening in the industry well and that's yeah you're exactly right the blending of the enjoyment factor of wine Mm. and the knowledge of wine um they're not segregated anymore Mm. Um, you know and yeah certainly on the weekend you know we were People asking about clones and, you know, growing techniques, winemaking techniques, and they really want to know what you do. Mm. It's not just I've got a glass of wine in front of me and I'm drinking it because it's got alcohol in it. At the end of the day, as long as people are sort of saying if they like it or not, that, that's that's great. But if, if, yeah. if they're engaging enough that they kind of want to take away a couple of key pieces of information, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Ho- hopefully they don't wipe it out, you know, later on yeah. and ne- next morning they wake up and go, was I at a wine event? Yeah, I think then you know, then you meet the Japanese way of doing things where they have to know everything. Yeah, about it's very clinical. Everything. Yeah. yeah, but the knowledge base is incredible, and I, I think we are on some small steps in that direction. People want to know what they're drinking, mm-hmm. really into their varietals and the styles of within those varietals and you know regionality and all that. They really want to know how it's done and why it is what it is in the glass in front of them. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, when you made the decision to uh, to go to Roseworthy, mm. was that uh, sort of saying, right, I better kind of, you know, get out there and, and get a proper job or did you kind of say, no, actually wine is something I really want to, 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 to get into, in, into working in? I think it's a bit of both. I, I'm a strong believer and still the same having travelled a lot more that uh, Australian hospitality is extremely underrated and underappreciated. Um, the pay in you know top hotels, restaurants, motels, you know even managers within um, premium hotels in Australia is minuscule to, compared to even friends I've got in Asia managing hotels who mm. you know on, on good money and serious about what they do. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was partly that that pushed me because I could see no defined lifetime, lifetime income from that end of the industry. Yeah. It's probably better now. As I said, there's professionals in that side of the industry. Um, but, yeah, I think certainly my passion for wine had grown. Um, it gave me a direction. I was very fortunate to go to the – I was the last of the old Roseworthy um, out at Roseworthy College. So mm-hmm. I think it was more – a very hands-on course rather than a general sciences course with a bit of a winery top-up feel. Right. Um, yeah, so I call it more of a TAFE learning, you know, very hands-on. Yep. 
um, very one and vineyard specific, very little general sciences. Sure. Mm. Um, and some of the, the people you studied with? Oh, Dave Bicknell. I mean, look, just one winemaker of the year. Yeah. Great guy and um, always had the feeling he was a great winemaker. Make, and makes a good Chardonnay. Still rate him as a good friend. Yeah, right. He's a really good guy. His wife, Nikki, was there as well. Uh, lovely person, great vineyard on. Steve Flamstead, once again, great guy, making some great wines over here as well. So, yeah, I, I think I was very fortunate. I went through with a really good crew of people that were very passionate, mature age students, knew what we wanted to achieve mm -hmm. and got in and did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so some great people. Having uh, grown up, you know, in the vineyard and the winery and, uh, and you know, with as far as your parents with Mosswood, did that give you much of a leg up when you went to Roseworthy? Um, yes and no. It, it helped me understand the things we were doing, but I didn't necessarily know the science or why we were doing them. Sure. So this gave me the backup knowledge of why I was watching Dad do what he was doing yeah. when I was a kid. So, yeah, yeah it, it gave me the leg up that way in that I knew that you do these things and, you know, you had outcomes from them. Um but I didn't get the science behind it. And so learning that base knowledge underneath it was certainly um, very handy and, yeah, it was helpful to sort of um, keep my knowledge level up, like push me through a bit easier than it would have been otherwise if I hadn't done that, I suppose. Do you think that that's a, a fundamental thing that's missing from a lot of wine producers is that, that it's the understanding, it's, yes, study and and kind of work out what the science behind it is but n not not necessarily use that knowledge to change or to push push a wine into a direction that it possibly doesn't need to be because um, i think that there's sort of there are there's a lot of wine in australia that are at the two extremes there's a lot of wine that's made with little understanding of the science around it and then mm -hmm. there's ones that are it's all about the numbers yeah i think I mean, there's so much in that question. Um, I'm anti-tannin additions and, you know, I'm not a natural winemaker, but I'm, I really am not into winery-made wine. Yep. I'm into growing bloody good grapes and then turning it into good wine. Exactly. Um, I'm, I'm not big on winery manipulation at all. Um, yeah, I think then you've got, uh, you know, this new natural, well, it's not that new at the moment, but the natural wine thing and I truly believe that it's a good thing. I think there's still a lot of rubbish wine coming out under the natural brand. Sure. But if you look at the old world, you know, I've been very fortunate in WA. We've got this little wine bar called No Mafia and the lady running it, Emma, has this amazing knowledge of these wines from Italy and they're natural wines, most of them. And she just blows my mind with the quality of these things. They don't have to be dirty and funky and ugly. They just can be a great wine but made with less addition. Yeah. And... You know, I'm. I think in this country we're almost deliberately making some faulty wines to call them natural, <laughs> and yeah. I, I get a bit annoyed by that because I've seen some really ugly crap, is how I'd put it. And if you want to brand them natural, I think you're actually going to hurt long term the natural brand on a wine. I think that there's there is a bit of a problem confusing clean with conventional yeah like yeah. a a well-made wine from well-grown grapes mm. can be very clean yeah. you don't need to manipulate things you don't need to use 
technology or, or chemistry to kind of clean a wine up. It can yeah. be clean. Yeah. But I, 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 I sort of tend to agree with you that the, the nature of natural wine, yeah. no pun intended, um, being a bit faulty, that's, uh, I worry that consumers and, and people in the trade as well yeah. are being educated or they're educating my, themselves that that's how it should taste and that's yeah. not necessarily the right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I had a Pinot a few weeks ago and it had had, to me, they were bragging about it being unfiltered on the label and it looked like they'd actually added yeast back to the wine. There was so much. It's very turbid. Yeah, but it had got to the point where the yeast was scalping the wine and stripping colour. Oh, okay. There was that much. It was horrible. Wow. Um, and, yeah, most of the great burgundies are unfiltered. Well, exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. Burg- burgundy is a really interesting case in point where they're really, apart from very big um, producers, big relatively to, to burgundy, yeah. um, it, manipulation is... They don't really need to. Like it's all no. small production anyway. So that's right. So I mean, it's are we going to use the word natural mm. to to say we've made a crappy wine and we're going to sell it as natural? Yeah. And I really think there are some great natural producers around. Yeah. And, and there are pl- there are plenty of producers who wouldn't. They don't want to be considered. They yeah. they say no. Don't call me natural. Yeah. You you look at my way of working and you might classify it as such. I don't want you to yeah. because I don't want to be included in a, a, a category of wine that yeah. has a lot of you yeah. know and, and poorly I'm, made wine. I'm not necessarily big on the natural and biodynamic thing, but I think the biggest thing that has achieved. It's got people back into the vineyards. They're having to grow better grapes to yeah. get them through those processes yeah. of less additions and less SO2. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, as an advocate side of it, saying, yeah, we've got to grow better grapes. I think that Australia in general has been on a downward spiral of grape growing where you pay the growers less so he grows more grapes and maybe a bit less quality. Yeah. So they pay them less and that happens over and over again. Rather than a wine being or grapes being grown to be in the top wine and then pushed down through the scale of quality in the winery, Yeah, it's grown to be the bottom end and it's up to the winemaker to try and push them up the scale in the winery. Yeah, And I think that's almost over now, but it was a really disappointing factor, I think, in the 2000s to see that within our industry. Um, I've always seen been noted and you know dave bicknell and steve used to say it to me at uni that you're really cynical about the industry and maybe because i grew up in a small winery focused fully on quality growing good grapes um that's my base and that's what i believe in and you know i even said to during the research phases of our uh, uni course that you know one day the wine industry won't even make a wine you'll pick a vintage of a great wine you love and you can type it into a machine and all the chemicals will be put together to manufacture that wine. So you can even pick... Sounds like something from Star Trek. Well, we're getting there, though. I read about three weeks ago an article of a guy who's actually doing this now in America. So they're creating... So you could even say... Terrifying. Pick a grange from the mid-60s or a great vintage or your birth year or whatever and type it in and it will have the chemical breakdown of that wine in its computer and it will just shove all the chemicals together and come up with that, recreate that wine for you today. 
Holy cow. And I suppose that, you know, there's a few things th- just It does, it does make out. sense. And yeah, you... it's just happening. And yeah, okay, it took 30 years, but it's on the way. Okay. Well, yeah. and I was being cynical at the time when I first said it. So uh, Reality is now here. <laughs> cynical, pragmatic. <laughs> it's a slippery slope. Yeah. Um, and, and when you were studying at Roseworthy, this was sort of at a time where there was demand for winemakers. The Australian wine industry was really starting to take off. They were starting to export a lot more wine. Um, was it uh, challenging for you, having come from that background, as you say, a small producer, a grower producer, to kind of have to separate yourself from that to learn about what, to a certain extent, would be commercial winemaking? Um, no, I think Roseworthy had a pretty good way of doing things then like for me going to uni isn't where you actually learn it's they teach you how to learn sure they teach you what you need to learn and what to look out for sure and sure we had some great lecturers you know pat island being one of them um who really taught us a a lot but they also taught us to how to learn what to listen to you know and and pick up tips from other people. And, you know, I've been very fortunate in my life through Dad's connections of learning a lot from other winemakers, you know, certainly Pat Carmody over here at Craig Lee. Sure. An amazing man who makes fantastic wines. And then over in WA, David Gregg, John Durham, John Kozovich, you know, old-school winemakers who are very open with their knowledge. And then certainly in Burgundy when we go there, people sharing their little tidbits and... You know, it's not really secrets. We've all got different ways of doing things and I believe there's no right or wrong. It's what you use to create your end product. Mm. You know, there's no real right or wrong to get to that point. Where was your first vintage, either during or post-studies? I worked during, uh, so the third year at Primo Estate okay. in South Australia with, luckily, Joe Grilly, um, amazing man, who's made some awesome wines in his time, and but his assistant winemaker at the time was Peter Godden, very right. scientific base, you know, an amazing guy as well. So I had this the artist and the scientist working together, and yeah, it taught me so much, taught me so much, and just great people as well. So, mm. And then after Roseworthy, luckily through my connections with Mosswood again, Keith Mugford was consulting to a place, Rosebrook in Margaret River, and got me the job there. Um, my business management background had helped me get that job as well because I had to be the winemaker and business manager there. So, mm. yeah, that was a good three years and then over to Picardy to work with Dad and Mum. So uh, when did they establish Picardy? Uh, they bought the land in 89 and started planting in 93 and I moved there in 96. Okay. Yeah. So uh, when when was the first commercial vintage released? Uh, 96, which uh, was Pinot only. Um, and we made it or did the ferments at Rosa Brook. Uh, we didn't have a winery ready at Piketty at the time and then we moved the, the winery was built during the year and moved the barrels back to Piketty at that point. Earlier this year we actually opened a magnum of the 96, so first crop. You know, limited winemaking knowledge for that variety from that region and, um, yeah, it, it looked really good. Only two clones in that. We've now got 11 clones. So, 
Yeah, um, we were a bit surprised how good it still looked, being <laughs> honest. <laughs> I didn't think it would hold up this long. Was 96 a, a pretty solid vintage? Yeah, it was good. It was a bit like the Burgundy. It's quite a structural vintage. So, sure. Yeah, it was one that will hold up. Right. Mm. How involved were you in terms of the the establishment of Picardy and planting of vineyards? Oh, not a lot. Mum and Dad did the majority of it. Um, I was over there the odd weekend, but not a hell of a lot in that stage. But, you know, since I've been there, we've also probably planted another 30%, um, you know, of which, yeah, ramming posts, running wires, uh, do it all ourselves. Fun so, stuff. Yeah, um, you know, certainly... Um, the way my father's brought us up is beginning to end, you know, even laying the concrete in the cellar floor and sure. yeah, the whole lot. Um, we've built a wall around the winery this year with the help of a friend who's a rock mason, a stone mason, and yeah, it's a 570 metres long limestone wall around the property and done by us. So yeah, a lot of work, but that's just the way we do things. There are a few years from the sale of Mosswood to establishing Picardy. Yeah. Was was it something that they always intended to to, to do? Was re re establish something new? Well, after they sold Mosswood, Dad and Mum bought shares in Domain Dollar Store in uh, Burgundy, mm-hmm. and yeah. certainly that gave them one an, a renewed passion. Um, <coughs> and you know, Dad was more into Burgundy by that or Pinot in, by that stage rather than um, Cabernet and. Yeah, it renewed his passion and then the, the shareholders in that actually set up Smithbrook with uh, Dad as the managing director in Pemberton um, and that sort of increased his sort of passion for it again and then through Pooh Store and Becky Wasserman in Burgi, Burgundy they got to learn a lot more about all the new clones of Pinot and Chardonnay and production techniques and you know oak and a lot of things and, yeah, he sort of always... He bought the land Piketty's on and planned to do just a little bit of his own as a retirement project. And I said to him, well, I'll come over and let's get into it and do it properly. Okay, so, so. there wasn't necessarily an expectation that you would come and, and, and help run the business? No, not in the beginning. Okay. Uh, it was more just a little toy vineyard for himself, you know, two or three acres of um, Pinot just for his passion, yeah. Back then, Pinot Noir wasn't as anywhere near as popular as it is now, uh, I think, you know, even when I started working in the in the business in 2004, Pinot Noir still hadn't really taken off. It was, wasn't until like maybe 2008 that Pinot Noir really started to, to take things off. So mm-hmm. um, there, there wouldn't have been a lot of references as far as Australian Pinot Noir no. uh, for, for, for your parents. No, there are a few good ones around, you know, certainly Mount Mary, um, Dad had done um, Mosswood, so, you know, he had his Pinot there as well. And, yep. Um, Giaconda. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, not um, Bannockburn as well. Um, certainly in WA there was a little guy, Carry View in Denmark and Lefroy Brook in Pemberton. So there were bits and pieces around that showed the potential, mm-hmm. I think, and mu- did make some very good wines in the right years. Um, you know, Piero and Cullen also had Pinot back then. Um, whether, you know, the right, re- Margaret River's the right region is always debatable. And I think in the cooler years has made some very good Pinots. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Mosswood 81 is still drinking very well. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, your passions move and that, and I'm also a big believer on palate transition. You start with your sweet white, your dry white, and then 
for some reason you jump from white to the biggest headache red you can find and then you soften off back through reds and you know probably end up at pinot but i also then believe after pinot you look for elegant complex reds so merlot um you know sangiovese barbera you know that I, th I believe and northern rhone shiraz probably i believe that you know people are looking more into the elegant finesse complex mm -hmm. wines now rather than just big yeah um and pemberton and and Great Southern, these were parts of WA that weren't very well developed for, for viticulture. Would, would, were your parents kind of seeking out a Pinot region for WA, you know, possibly thinking Mug River, maybe it's not the best place for, for Pinot Noir, let's try and find somewhere else? Definitely, definitely. And, you know, um, John Gladstone's and Olmo had sort of written up Pemberton as being cooler, more Burgundian style. Um, as it works out, you know, Gladstone's book, Viticulture and the Environment, has a lot on it. And, uh, yeah, Burgundy, Pemberton and Mornington are all within plus or minus one degree, one eight day degree yep. of Burgundy. So, you know, it is the right region. Um, the soils have turned out to be very good. There's uh, sort of ironstone laterite soils that if you look around West St George, there's some stones very similar to what we've got. Mm. So. Having about twenty years, twenty years experience mm. uh, in the business would have significantly helped in terms of picking the right sites and putting together how you were, they were going to plant the vineyard. Um, what sort of decisions were made about uh, how to to establish and then grow the Picardy vineyard? Um, well, Dad was always an avid reader, and you know he's a very smart man. And you, you look at what he achieved at Mosswood from zero knowledge as yeah. such and then you know Smithbrook and time at uh, Pooh Store you know it, it, the good thing about where we're at with Piketty is it was actually started with an end point in mind um, so done with a, not a lot of knowledge I mean it was the third winery I was involved in building um, the second one third one dad was involved about the fourth vineyard dad was involved with the third vineyard I was involved with um, so, yeah, we sort of always had a plan of where we'd end up. And so rather than just starting small and osmotically growing, we actually always knew the end point of how we wanted to design the place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been very good that way in that it's done with knowledge, not guesswork a bit. Uh, did you kind of, when you when you stepped into to um, work with the family, um, was that sort of it or did you have the opportunity over the years to kind of perhaps travel overseas, do a vintage here or there kind of thing? I've done a lot of travel. I haven't had time to do vintages between uh, Piketty and family and that. Um, I've always been too busy. Um, you know, the, the most time I can ever really take away from the property is a week at a time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's being small, you know, there's so much hand on, hands on more office work nowadays running the business for me but um yeah we're really lucky to have a guy who's been with us 10 years john who pretty much runs the vineyard and winery now um but yeah um yeah it's just full on i'm probably 70 percent in the in the offices now uh, running the business so, mm. Mm. Man management yeah which uh, <laughs> thanks to bureaucracy gets worse and worse every year yeah it's a bit of red tape isn't there <laughs> yeah um so tell me a little bit about um, the different uh, clones 
that because uh, clones seem to be something that you're particularly interested in. So, yeah. uh, tell me about what, what what's the importance of the clones that you use uh, or have used at Picardy. I think I mean most of our clonal works with Pinot and Chardonnay, but um, yeah, I strongly believe that they can be a little bit simplistic on their own. And you know, the Bordelais use uh, different varieties to get the complexities into their wines. Um, I think in the Burgundian varieties, you you need your clonal variation to get the real complexity into them. Um, uh, you know, for us, you know, we've find we certainly know the older five clones we've had. We've just got six new clones in. Um, but uh, they're all very different on their textures, uh, flavour points on the palate and flavour mm-hmm. styles as well. So, mm. And uh, as far as how you're working in the cellars, um, what sort of decisions do you make uh, to, uh, I guess, guide the, the, the really hard work, most of the work that's done in the vineyard, yep. uh, into what ends up in the bottle? Um I suppose most of it, we're, vineyard and winery management really has been more an evolution of things and it's almost the bad years that make you learn. Um, so, you know, how to... Do you have to work a bit things, harder? Yeah, handle things a bit better, you know, in the vineyard in 96. Oh, sorry, 06, it was just wet and drizzly and we let the cover crop keep growing and use up the soil moisture and something we do every year now. So, you know, um, trying to create smaller berries, I think, in Pinot... Um, Skin to juice ratios is a huge thing, so you're really trying to push smaller berries in the vineyard, and then you know longer time on skins has probably been another thing. Um, we've never we trialed the very high uh, SO two regimes that some Burgundian Jews um, didn't really find it did anything good, so didn't go there. Just sitting on skins a bit longer in the fermenters, shifting from red sort of tart type fruit flavours through to more black fruit. Um, yeah, oak, certainly oak usage for us is huge. Um, we work very closely with a, a Tonellery uh, Mario from Burgundy, um, very dry, clean, sweet, nutty oaks. Um, you know, they've been fantastic for us. Um, always trialling other oaks and being honest, we're really struggling to find any oak that fits as well as that. We've got two other oaks we use alongside it. But if anything happened to Tenelli marry you, we're going to be really stuck. <laughs> so yeah, it's so, and that's why we're always trialing just in case something does go wrong there. But yep. um, yeah, we're very happy with that for our wine. It doesn't suit all wine. I don't think all winemakers have a different uh, outlook on oak and what they're using it for and the flavours they want from it. So yeah, um, I think that's the main thing for us. Is but and. We're pretty hands-off, like the Pinot and Chardonnay are on the East Lees the whole 10 months in oak and we don't rack much and you know, I like that secondary Lees texture and flavour as well. Something that uh, you've you've done work on and you're quite passionate about and it's something that obviously affects the entire industry but Australia in particular in the past is seals mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and you're not a fan of screw caps? No, it's not I'm not a fan. They just don't suit my wine. We've right. trialled them. Okay. And because we are reductive, it's on yeast leaves the whole time in barrel, um, we find the screw cap really shuts our wine down. Yeah. Um, we do need the oxygen ingress of uh, cork. Um, we've also run trials with Salatage years ago on the synthetics and basically uh, they started scalping the wine from three months and so they certainly weren't anywhere near as good as cork for the rest of the trial. 
Um, you know, there's been promises for a very long time of uh, oxidative screw caps, and certainly if when they come out, I'll be revisiting that. Um, you know, and, and I do need that for my wine. Mm -hmm. All our trials have shown that. And, uh, yeah, the, the price point of cork now is quite high and costs uh, cost savings alone between the cork and capsule would be massive if mm. I could go to screw cap. Um, Do you think the quality of the cork is, is better now uh, than it was before screw caps sort of took over a lot There's more? no doubt. Yeah, the, the screw caps have certainly given the cork producers a good kick in the ass. Um, there's also other things behind it that a lot of people don't talk about. You know, they were using a lot of chlorine-based uh, chemicals in the forests and, you know, in sterilising and sterilising the corks and then the containers. And, you know, now, well, quite a long time ago, they they realised that was the precursor for the TCA. Yeah. And so they've actually stopped using any chlorine in any of the production processes and growing processes in the forests. And, you know, when they realised that, they said it would be too um, tree put, um skins off and they they worked out that it, that would come through in the mid-2000s and I reckon about 04 onwards the cork has got a lot better. Mm. You know, I'm not saying it's perfect yet. You know, there's now another thing happening which uh, one of our suppliers is giving us um, corks that uh, every cork is sniffed by GCMS and guaranteed no taint. So it's Also cost, GCMS? Uh, grow. It's massive chromatography so it, each cork gets electronically sniffed effectively for TCA. Okay. Um, yeah, so Interesting. Yeah, when that um, comes through, well, it's, we're now using that cork, you know, we're pretty much guaranteed that it shouldn't happen. Um, yeah, so hopefully that's the case, but it's not a cheap process either. So, One of the interesting things that I noticed when I visited a few years ago uh, was that you're keeping the bottles upside down. Yeah. Uh, is that how you store all of your wines, even in the cellar? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there was some production faults with cork in that I think people played with low SO2. You cannot do that with cork. You've got an oxidative seal and yet you're trying to use less... Um, yeah, or more oxidative techniques in the winery. I find that uh, kind of ironic with the natural wines is they yeah. don't really like to use screw cut. They use yeah, natural Yeah, but cork. if you're going to be natural, I think you've got to use screw cut. I think yeah. it's a bit hypocritical if you go. Sorry, for that reason you've got to use screw cut. But if you want to be natural, you've got to use cork yeah. to keep the natural thing. So yeah. there's that thing there. Yeah, it makes it very difficult. <laughs> um, you know, the Burgundians, you know, there's a lot of complaints about Oxidation in oh, white burgundies. Yeah, 90s white burgundies, yeah. Oh, and they played again a couple of years ago. They sort of go through waves where the white burgundian producers, not all of them, um, but quite a few of them play with the low SO2s. And, yeah, that shows up pretty quickly if you're using cork, I think. You know, where a screw cap, you can go low SO, SO2. And, you know, and that's where the benefits of that seal come from. Mm. But I think with cork, yeah, you've got to be careful. You can't store it upright, otherwise you... Uh, Risk drying out the cork, you've got to keep it wet, either on its side or upside down. And I think that was a fault because a lot of people were storing them up right. I mean, I had guys saying, oh, random oxidation of 70%. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not random. That's man. not random at that's all. That's shit winemaking. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's ra that's random oxidation in the way that uh, the way the police pull you over to do a breath test. Yeah. Like, you know, that, that's so, uh, yeah, I think yeah, cork's copped a lot of flack for 
other faults that have been introduced. I mean, someone told me of this huge number of corked bottles they got. Well, I've seen a lot of TCA in oak as well, and you yeah. know, if you've got a really high percentage TCA, well, maybe that could be coming from the oak. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, when I was doing my studies, I heard about TCA coming from pallets. Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's it is funny. Cork is sort of like that. It's that last thing, mm. and so you kind of start with the, the most recent thing. It's like, oh, it must be the cork. It's like, well, there's probably a lot of stuff before that that could uh, could have gone yeah. wrong that's caused the wine to be faulty. Yeah, and I know it's not perfect, and you know, like any management as well, you ameliorate your risks, and yeah, you know, certainly when cork was crap, um, there was a couple of producers that had some pretty bad court cases against them for supplying bad cork, and yet people were still using those companies. Yeah. I dropped them very quickly and, you know, I tried to use two or three different cork suppliers. So you had a different range of batches of cork. So if there was a problem batch, you, okay, you still got some, but you got a lot less. Yeah. Um, but certainly since the mid-2000s, we're finding the cork quality so much better. And I'm sure there's still crap cork coming in, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I think it's really working with the right suppliers to get it right and paying the money for the good cork. Yeah, and a, yeah. Pre- a premium wine producer should be using a premium cork producer, yeah. a cork yeah. supplier. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of not premium cork suppliers around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, do you still try and taste as extensively as you can, sort of getting references, particularly in terms of Burgundy? Oh, yeah, yeah, we buy quite a bit of Burgundy. Luckily, um, yeah, we're in a position now where we can. Oh, I have to admit, though, my... Purchases of Burgundy in the last 12 to 18 months have slowed right down in that it's just becoming so expensive. And there um, seems to be less of it as well. Yeah, um, certainly they've had this, a few smaller vintages. and Oh, and the, and the market for Burgundy around yeah, the world is totally just, different to, to how it was 15, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that's a shame in itself because there's a lot of passionate Burgundy drinkers who can now long, no longer afford it. And so... Burgundy, a bit like Bordeaux did, um, might be going to people with money, not to people with passion. Yeah. And for my wine, I'd almost rather see it being drunk by people with passion. And But on the other hand, it opens up for you know the good New World producers to fill that void and hopefully um, can you know we can be recognised as some very good Pinot yeah. Burgundian-esque producers. The, the, the passionate but uh, poorer... <laughs> Yeah. customer will find alternatives yeah. and uh, whether it's in an alternative variety or region uh, in, in in France, for example, or whether it's an alternative country mm. in terms of uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, then if, if I guess it encourages exploration and trying different things. Yeah. And, you know, for me, you know, because I am fussy with Pinot, it is hard to find the style I like, and also that's the thing is it's such a wide range of styles of sure. Pinot. You know, I'm more into elegant. I call them the sexy, silky ones. And uh, you know, finesse and complexity is my thing rather than bigness. And, mm-hmm. You know, if you want a Shiraz, drink a Shiraz. Uh, don't find a Pinot that tastes like Shiraz. Um, but that's my personal point of view. Um, and there's some great producers. I mean, from over here, if I'm allowed to name names, I drink a, a lot of Hurley Vineyards from the Mornington. And sure, Timo Mayer. Yep. Um, I think they're making some fantastic wines, but that's my style. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the other ones out there, but they're the two I love. Absolutely, know? and and I think that's the the one of the best things you can do is to find the producer 
that, mm. that you connect with because vintage to vintage the wine might change but the style hopefully will yeah. uh, remain. And I think with Pinot that's a big thing, the vintage to vintage thing. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, you're right. As long as you've still got the winemaker, the vineyards, you know, you've still got what they offer with some variation, I think that makes it more interesting because, you know, if you want a wine that tastes exactly the same every year, yeah, you go to the big producers because yep. that's what they do well. Yeah. If you want something interesting every year, yep. you look at the smaller producers for what they do. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Well, Dan, it has been fascinating uh, chatting with you. I really do appreciate your time. Um, if you'd like people to find out more information about Picardy, they can find that on websites. Yeah, website, Facebook. Yep. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, Probably the website's got the most information on it. Right? Fantastic. And yeah. and if you can spare the time, it is a lovely drive out to Pemberton. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I don't know if you take visitors, but get, yeah. in, get in contact via the, the website and, and ask Dan if he's uh, willing to, 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 to welcome you. Yeah, and if you keep an eye on Facebook, I put up when we're out doing things like Pinot Police are on the weekend. Yeah. Come to events we're at. But, um, yeah, my... Get on the mailing list as well. My marketing thing for Pemberton, especially to the Victorians, is come and get cold and wet somewhere else. (laughs) Well, thanks very much, Dan. I'm looking forward to catching up again soon. No worries. Thanks, James. And thank you for joining us on the first episode of The Vincast for 2018. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and you can follow me on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast can be found on Twitter as well, at The Vincast. Uh, Intrepid Wino is the YouTube channel you should be checking out. Make sure you subscribe, check out some of the videos, leave a comment, uh, share on social media, uh, and like some of those videos. Lots of videos there, including uh, oh, 175 odd Let's Taste videos. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, um, Podbean, iHeartRadio, hopefully Spotify soon. Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, it's also a fantastic way to access every single episode of the show. Uh, and you can also leave a rating and review which provides feedback not just to myself but also potential listeners and, more importantly, past and potential guests of the show. So please, please take five minutes out and leave a rating review, particularly on iTunes. It really does help the podcast grow. Uh, all the information there can be found on my website, intrepidwino.com. Uh, different ways of getting in contact with me, as well as different writings I've done in the past. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I really do appreciate you guys uh, supporting and listening. Uh, and I'm very excited to have um, a lot of great episodes for 2018. But until then, bye. Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com.